Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and joining me today is our good friend Yuval Weber, who is a global fellow with the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center, and he's also a research assistant professor at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service in Washington, D.C., and he has been very helpful to us in congressional briefings and research and here on the Need to Know podcast before, too. So thanks for joining us again, Yuval. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being here. And I also wish to mention that I'm uh, the Brent Chair of Russian Military and Political Strategy at the Krulak Center at Marine Corps University as well. Ah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Sorry I missed that. Um, so you're here to talk to us about Alexei Navalny today. Uh, you, you really do a good job of grounding truth in what's going on in Russian society, how Putin kind of navigates some of this. I'm sure everybody who's listening knows who Alexei Navalny is, so I don't think we need to cover that ground. But he's an interesting figure in that there's a lot of people that have kind of popped up over the years in Russian opposition. Um, but Navalny seems to have some kind of staying power and particularly an interest in the West. So tell us a little bit about this sort of particular magic or, or mixture that Navalny has that interests the West and how that really plays in Russia. So sure. So in terms of what's interesting about Navalny and what makes him sort of interesting to the West is to understand that's basically the mirror image of what makes Putin interesting and what makes Russia interesting to the West. So when we think about Putin, we think about a guy who's been in power for 20 plus years, just did a constitutional referendum to give himself the ability to rule until 2036, which if he makes it the whole time, will make him the third longest Russian uh, leader, the longest serving Russian leader uh, since the days of Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. So really getting up there. And so the thing that makes Navalny interesting is why a guy who can be, you know, described as just a blogger is worthy of assassination and is worthy of a police response, um, which has netted more than 10,000 people arrested in the first 10 days of the guy returning to Russia after recovering from said assassination attempt. And the thing that is sort of interesting about Navalny is that you know, he's got basically a few things that really go to the way that Putin holds on to power. Obviously, um, the, way that, the way that Navalny does it is he has a sense of humor and he has one clear message, which is anti-corruption. If you put everything together, what Navalny says, it is Russia has plenty of money, but the people on the top are just not spending it on you. And so when he goes through all of his different anti-corruption targets, Putin, uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, um, the Procurator General, which is sort of like Russia's version of the Attorney General. Um, that guy also, his family was involved in all sorts of financial funny business. All of these things basically are this, the iterations of the same story. They're taking the money 
and you're not enjoying it. And that's basically his core appeal. And that really goes into like the way that Putin has held on to power for so long. Putin has three core successes over 20 years in charge. He balances all the elite factions. So all the big players at the very top, their view on Putin is, you know, even if I may want to get a little bit more here, a little bit more there, you know, it's really dangerous if I start to get into conflict with other, you know, big fish. So it's better to have Putin as the referee, as the umpire, as the guy who basically mediates our disputes at the very top. Putin has also had success in terms of enforcing discipline on the Russian state. So he's really good at balancing power horizontally amongst all the really big players. He's really good about enforcing power vertically so that every person in every sort of dusty village who's some sort of state official thinks at the end of this decision at some point is Putin. So if I make a mistake, uh, you know, the boss is out to get me. And so it's having power balanced at the, at the top, power being enforced all the way down to the bottom and telling the people of Russia, you know, life may get, you know, life may be better or worse in other countries, but really what makes me special, what makes me Putin special is that think about what it was like before I got here. And then think about how much I have done in order to make Russia a great power once more. Life is better with me than without me. And so what Navalny does is he says, you know, all of that may or may not be true, but let's actually focus on how much better life can get. And not just in some sort of like, you know, crazy vision of the future, but what if we just remove all those big fish at the top which basically will keep Putin in power. If we removed Putin, the people around him, and all those oligarchs and other big boys at the very top, that's billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that would otherwise go to the people of Russia. And that's essentially what makes Navalny interesting, is that he just makes this issue about redistribution, about redistributing money away from people who are already billionaires to the rest of um, the people of Russia. And so once they see Putin getting angry and nervous and frustrated about this, then it seems the guy who's been ruling for decades is really nervous about this guy. So what is that story? And I think that's the interest in Navalny. So I think you bring up an interesting question then about what are Navalny's politics? You mentioned anti-corruption, but you also mentioned you know, the redistribution aspect of it. So is he communist? Is he socialist? Is he nationalist? We've heard a lot of reports recently about some things that he said in the past. Help us understand how he kind of molds himself to the politics in Russia. So sure. I mean, the way that Navalny has worked is something that reminds me actually about Joe Biden in a sense. Now, they're obviously, they're very different people with very different issues at, at play. But one thing that I've you know, heard and read so much about Joe Biden is that he, his main talent is identifying where is you know, the Democratic electorate, where's the Democratic conference, and then putting himself exactly in that middle. So that when the electorate and the conference is much more conservative or much more liberal, he's basically the one who's directly uh, bringing together those two wings of the party. In that same sense, what Navalny's core political talent is, is he has one main thing that he talks about. It's been anti-corruption for 20 plus years. 
the guy has not gotten off that one particular horse. But he's been able to identify what is the main political issue of the day in Russia. And then he basically gives anti-corruption through that lens. So in the years of Boris Yeltsin, it was all about market reform, anti-communism, sort of a libertarian style market fundamentalist. In, that, in those days, reducing the power of the state, in one sense, made him a libertarian. It also made him, in the post-Soviet universe, um, you know, through the looking glass, it made him a pro-Western liberal. And he talked about anti-corruption as ending the power of the state to pick and choose the winners, as it did during the communist era. In the early 2000s, economic boom times had brought a lot of migrant workers from the Caucasus, from Central Asia, and in the big cities of Russia, a lot of nativist backlash. Obviously, it's something that is also true here in the United States. So when basically nationalism was the feeling of the day, he used that as an opportunity to criticize the way that Putin had created these very cozy relationships with people from very dubious areas of Russia and former Soviet Union. And he said, why is Putin giving all this money to people who is, do not espouse pro-Russian interests or pro-Russian values? Okay. Um, and in recent years, it has been all about populism. Um, in 2008, the financial crisis, uh, you know, the start in the U.S. housing market got to Russia as well. And there, the government was able to bail out the economy. In 2014, there was another grievous recession from the combination of the fall in the oil prices and uh, the sanctions regime that came in. So what Putin has done is actually the core to the way he's kept his elite together. Russia has plenty of money. The issue is not money. But Putin has kept that in the the reserve funds and basically like the government savings and checking accounts in order to be able to compensate all the people and enterprises which are affected by sanctions, as well as to make sure that what doesn't happen, what happened to Gorbachev and what happened to Yeltsin, in which there was basically a run on the bank in the late 1980s and in the late 1990s doesn't happen to him, which for the average Russian person means the government is not spending money on them. And that's what Navalny is criticizing. He says, look, you can look at the website of the Ministry of Finance, the central bank, and see we have hundreds of billions of dollars available. Why aren't we getting that money? It's all oil money anyways. It's not you know, tax money here. And so that's how Navalny has taken you know, from liberalism or libertarianism to nationalism, not to just straight populism in his attacks against Putin, the oligarchic class, the poor state of the economy, inequality, all of those issues to get to the same point that the core problem is that the Russian state is deeply corrupted and that that's the thing that needs to be addressed first and foremost. So, okay, so he's going to he picks and chooses kind of you know, cherry picks his politics, I guess, is the, the way to think about it. Um, well, then how popular is he actually within Russia? So the, the popularity of Navalny is, without, without much exaggeration, the highest it's ever been. Um, first of all, there are now consistent public opinion surveys about Navalny, which there have not been in recent years, uh, which indicates that there's enough interest in getting to understand what people think about him. When you then go through all the data, 
it appears that roughly 20% of Russians have a favorable view of him. And the favorable view sort of goes into what do public opinion surveys in Russia really tell you? Because Putin's public opinion surveys somewhere usually between 55 and 85%. Uh, when there's no, not much alternative political competition, that doesn't give you as much uh, information. And when elections don't really, when you know the, the, the winners of the elections beforehand, elections don't give you that much information. So what public opinion in uh, surveys in Russia really tell you is, are you Russian public opinion, public opinion respondent? Are you satisfied with the way the country is going or are you ready for change? And what we've seen is that when Navalny's approval ratings are 20%, it may be that some people like him personally, in terms of his politics, like anti-corruption, or when they look at him, they see an alternative to Putin and a change to the status quo. And so in that context, when we think about 20%, that is by far the largest percentage of Russians who are able, who have been willing to say, at least indirectly, we're willing to look at and see what comes after Putin. And that's basically the change from, you know, the, the really low levels in the, the boom years of the early 2000s or the patriotic fervor after the annexation of Crimea. Well, then what has Putin done about this besides try to kill him? That, that was probably plan C, right? He's been working through ways to deal with Navalny. He survived an assassination attempt, obviously attributed to uh, the Russian leadership. So what what is Putin trying to do now? Our listeners probably know, you know, he's back. He came back to Russia knowing that he would be arrested when he arrived, because while he was in a coma, he missed a court date. Uh, and so uh, that, that obviously means that he would be arrested and sent to prison. Uh, so this is uh, the status right now. But what's what's Putin doing about this as his popularity seems to rise and it's at the highest that it's ever been? So I like the way that you put assassination as plan C, because actually I think it is it was the plan C. So plan A, ignore the guy and just, you know, try to pretend he doesn't exist. Plan B uh, arrest him repeatedly, put him under house arrest repeatedly, imprison his family members um, in order to encourage him to leave the country or to exit politics. Plan C, uh, put poison in his underwear. Um, so we've gone through plans A through C. Those have not worked. It seems like uh, you're getting more and more escalation. And it seems like there would be some reaction within Russia, okay, the guy, he tried to kill the guy. Does that get any resonance within Russia? Yeah, so um, the, it reminds me, there's the biblical admonition. Um, what is it? The, the, guil the guilty flee where no innocent man is pursued. I'm totally butchering that. But the idea is if, if you don't know much about Navalny, and you basically have known Putin as your, your, your father, your best friend, your, your protector for the, the past 20 years. And you see that the Russian government is going to these crazy lengths um, to get this guy away from state-owned public media, um, to basically arrest him several times, to try to assassinate the guy, basically to keep him outside the country, 
warn him directly not to return or else he will be imprisoned. The guy still comes back. They arrest and beat up 10,000 plus of his, of his followers. Um, he has, he puts on these videos on YouTube, which the latest one about so Putin's palace, like on the Black Sea coast, now has 110 million views. You got to think, whether you, whatever it is that you know or don't know about the guy, it seems that the Russian state is putting a lot of resources and a lot of attention uh, on this one individual. What, therefore, is this guy talking about? What, are, what is his group like? What is his organization like? What are his real interests? And that's obviously the thing that sort of resonates. Clearly, whatever this guy is talking about means business. So after going through plans A through C, ignore, um, use coercive measures, assassination, the guy comes back, he's going to jail for, you know, period of time, whoever knows how long at this point. Um, so then just today, the Russian government comes out with uh, its new economic stimulus plan ahead of the forthcoming uh, parliamentary elections. And the parliamentary elections where Navalny's team uh, is going to work and try to um, attack United Russia, the pro-government party at every turn. So the government party comes out today and says, our economic stimulus plan is 500 billion rubles, which is about $6.7 billion, which obviously is $6.7 billion, uh, give or take a you know, couple pennies here and there of what you and I both have together. However, on a per capita basis, this is about $47. That's not a lot of money even in Russia. Just for comparison's sake, $1.9 trillion, which is the current stimulus bill uh, that's going through the US Congress right now, on a per capita basis is just under $5,800 per person. Obviously the United States is a much wealthier country, but if basically one country thinks 5,800 is a lot of money in order to like make a difference in the economic situation that we're in versus about $48. That's the difference that we're going to you know, get out of the country. You can see that that actually goes into Navalny's main point, which is other countries look at the economic devastation wrought by coronavirus and say, what's the most that we can do in order to make people's lives better while we get the vaccine under control? The Europeans, spend a ton of money, the Americans spend a ton of money, the Chinese spend a ton of money, and they're giving us basically the price of a really fancy dinner. And that's again, the core of the anti-corruption message um, that Navalny has been pushing so much. So that's plan D, uh, but it sounds like what's already built up around Navalny's popularity and populism is this narrative, well, you're not giving us the money that we all earn, you're not doing that redistribution, you're saving it for the people at the top. It would seem that this economic plan plays more into Navalny's message. So how does that play in upcoming elections and whatever is out there on the horizon? You know, it's, it's an excellent question. And so one of the things that Navalny really got under the skin of Putin and the, the Russian government is what uh, he's called smart voting. And this smart voting is uh, not about backing, you know, Navalny party candidates. Navalny party doesn't exist. And moreover, anyone associated with him does not run for office. They're, they're, they find ways to make sure people like that don't, don't get into um, electoral races. 
But what Navalny's team has done is basically have this, uh, this system in which they identify of the government party, which runs in every single election, they look for who are the weak incumbents and who are plausible opponents to those weak incumbents, which is something similar to both Republicans and Democrats. They're always looking for the weakest incumbents to you know, have primary challenges or whatever else. So what Navalny's team does is they don't say you have to um, you know, pass this ideological litmus test. They just identify the weak incumbent, they identify the strongest alternative, and they say, we're going to support in this race, a communist, in the other race, a nationalist, in the third race, a liberal, it doesn't matter. Whoever is the strongest anti-government candidate, they will tell their supporters in that uh, electoral district, you're going to support if you want to be against the government, if you want to have a meaningful against all selection, choose this person. And that has been fairly successful in a number of races around the country. And so what Navalny's team is saying is that for the forthcoming parliamentary elections um, in September of this year, that they are going to do a nationwide smart voting system in which they are going to identify the most plausible anti-government person in each race, no matter what. And so that they are going to try and just reduce the uh, majorities or reduce the successes of the government party and thus make it more difficult for United Russia and the government for which it stands to do whatever it needs to do in the forthcoming parliamentary term. And this, so just to clarify, this could mean that they're supporting communist candidates or other opposition party people. They're just identifying who's the weakest and trying to support the most salient opposition member, no matter what party that's from. So, yes. So, so as I said, um, there's no ideological test. Um, the ideological test, as it were, is are you against United Russia? Are you against the, uh, the government party? Are you against the government right now? And if that person says yes, I'm willing to organize my electoral campaign, not just on my communist beliefs or nationalist policy preferences, but to utilize and leverage basically this anti-incumbent, anti-government sentiment across the, the country or the electoral district, then that's who the Navalny team is going to support. So they're going to support a really broad range of people in the forthcoming election. So one question we had from a congressional staffer when we had our briefing last week that I thought was a pretty good question to be asking, particularly for congressional staff and policymakers who listen to this podcast. What do you think the United States should not do or the West should not do when it's talking about Navalny or looking at how to deal with Russia uh, in this particular political time that they're dealing with? So Navalny has, um, is obviously popular in the West because he's the, he's the clearest anti-Putin figure of all of Russian politics. But if the West and the United States hugs him a little, hugs him too closely, then it provides grist for the mill for the Russian government to say, this guy's a Western agent, he's a tool of the US, um, you know, and really he's just a project directed by the State Department and the CIA. That's clearly um, what Navalny has, has tried to avoid uh, throughout his career in recent years. And 
that's also why he came back. I mean, he could have been sort of a very popular anti-Putin commentator, um, you know, in the West. I'm sure he could have given many interviews in, in which uh, the tagline would have been, meet the man poisoned by Putin. And so, but instead he returned to Russia in order to, to have this domestic politics fight. And so to that extent, the amount of influence that the United States or the West, in, the West at large has on Russian domestic politics is very minimal, limited at best. But what it can do is basically, um, the, the bad thing that Navalny wants to avoid is becoming um, essentially lauded too, too greatly by the West, in which his brand becomes associated with the West. And at that point, it's easy to then uh, characterize him as some sort of foreign agent rather than this anti-corruption pro-redistribution guy who ha- who's a Russian person with Russian problems in a Russian context. Well, finally, Yuval, I wanted to ask, what do you see out there on the horizon? Uh, perhaps, you know, what the U.S. may do or what Russia may do. Uh, what's out there that you're watching? So sure. So the executive branch response uh, so far has been to, you know, work with Russia on arms control and basically just leave it at that. Um, President Biden, in a recent speech at the State Department, um, mentioned Navalny by name and noted that the cause for his arrest was anti-corruption. So it's something that's on the agenda of Biden, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, and you know the rest of their team. But it's actually in the legislative branch which uh, can make the biggest difference. Um, Senator Romney, Senator Coons, uh, you know, so bipartisan from Republican from Utah, Democrat from Delaware, have put together a. Um, Holding Russia Accountable for Malign Activities Act of 2021. And their response can actually be, in some ways, informative for basically the world writ large. Um, but really, when it gets to um, its invocation of directing the Secretary of State to investigate whether the use of Novichok, the actual poison, was a violation of the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act, that actually could be a game changer for Russia because the sanctions uh, for violating the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act are totally grievous. And this includes um, cutting basically all of Russia off from uh, using the international financial system given the dollar centrality. So this is like cutting Russia off from SWIFT so they can't use credit cards. Um, this would, could include uh, banning Russia from using uh, the airspace of countries which are signatories to the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act. So that means no flights to Europe, no flights to uh, the US, and and vice versa. You couldn't fly to Russia. Um, So unless someone wants to swim there, you're not getting to Russia anytime soon. Um, But it also includes things such as cutting off the imports and exports of Russia to countries which are the signatories. And that would mean a full-scale economic blockade of Russia. That would be huge. All the other issues that we've seen over the past six years of the sanctions regime, you know, sanctioning individuals, um, releasing reports on murders or Putin's wealth, all that sort of stuff, it basically confirms what everyone knows. So it doesn't really uh, push the needle too much. But really cutting Russia off from the international economy, that could make a difference. And if that sort of goes through, that would be even bigger than one of the other things in the Romney Coons bill which is calling on Germany to bring to an end the Nord Stream 2 gas pipelines, gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. All of these things basically pale in comparison 
to violating the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act, which has, to the to what I'm thinking about, generally has only been used against like um, much smaller countries, which are much less able to withstand concerted economic pressure. Russia has taken the last six plus years of taking everything that the West has thrown at it, but this would be the true challenge to Putin's hold on power. So that's something that I would follow very closely. It's interesting. What do you think the prospects of that? And of course, you know, if there's anybody listening from uh, Senator Romney and Senator Coons's office, maybe we can have them on to talk about this. What are the prospects of that? Act? I mean, we've taught, we've heard before about taking Russia out of the SWIFT system before, and it just, uh, there seems to be a reticence to, to really pull that trigger. Um, why is that, you know, and, and it is, what are the prospects of this actually happening now? The, the prospects that are happening are at its core political is the West as basically a multi-component, you know, actor. There is, you know, the, the United States, its NATO allies, non-NATO allies within Europe, non-NATO allies outside of Europe. Is everyone willing to take this step for Navalny? Russia's big bet is when it comes to additional sanctions, it's happening. There's, there's really no point uh, to try to like block that. So they understand that's happening. They've been trying really hard to make sure that Nord Stream 2 doesn't happen. But, and here's the, uh, here's the kicker, they keep using uh, prohibited poisons against individuals that they don't like. These chemical biological weapons, the Novichok, which was the same thing that was used against um, Sergei Skripal and his daughter a couple of years ago in Salisbury, England, which also killed two people in the UK. Um, Bellingcat, which uh, did the big investigation into that, has also noted that this has probably been used against at least three regime opponents inside of Russia in the past couple of years as well. So in terms of basically making a point here, the bigger point isn't whether they want to do this for Navalny, although that's how Russia is going to try and spin it. The bigger question here is, is the use of chemical weapons as an instrument of assassination something that the United States is sufficiently willing to establish a norm against. One would have thought that when the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act came through, United States signed it, Russia signed it, everyone's party to it, that they would have agreed we're not going to do chemically-based assassinations. But now that we have seen several instances of chemical weapon-based assassinations or assassination attempts, then, then it comes down to that question. Is this a norm that the United States and its allies are willing to essentially make real and solidify by imposing pretty significant sanctions on Russia to underline that idea. Don't use chemical weapons to assassinate people, which is a subset of don't use chemical weapons. Yeah, so the words are one thing, but enforcement is what really makes it a solid compact. So interesting. All right, Yuval. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. This is uh, always enlightening, and I look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you. Anytime. Take care. If you like this episode and you want to hear more from the Kennan Institute, you need to check out Russia File and Kennan X. Both are available wherever you get podcasts. We also have an amazing digital archive at the Wilson Center. 
And our folks in our history and public policy program have started digging into it and putting it into podcasts in International History Declassified. So be sure to check those out anywhere you get your podcasts.